before you listen to today's awesome episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Eileen, who helped support the podcast. Contributions like these help offset some of the costs that go into maintaining the podcast. There are no sponsors or advertisements for the show, and so right now I pay for all the hosting and other costs related to maintaining the podcast. If you're interested in helping support the show, go to ko-fi.com forward slash Dana Wanzer. You can also find the link in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or know someone who you think should be on, please reach out to podcast at danawanzer.com. I'd love to chat with you about any and all things evaluation related. And now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Evalueland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to another episode of Evalueland. Thanks to a wonderful listener for suggesting today's topic on the job market in evaluation. This is going to be a two-part episode. One episode will be with somebody new to the field, and today's episode is with somebody more established in the field. If you have any questions or ideas for future topics or guests, please email me at podcast at danawanzer.com. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. Aisha Boyce return to the podcast. She was on the podcast nearly two years ago. Can you believe it? Episode four, when we talked about teaching evaluation and supporting students and colleagues of color. Today, we talk about the theme of evaluation students again and talk about how we can better support young and emerging evaluators by talking about the job market and how to get a career in evaluation. So thank you for coming back to the podcast, Aisha. My pleasure. I'm excited to chat today. Yeah. Well, I know uh, some life circumstances have changed a little bit for you since two years ago. So can you introduce yourself to our listeners again? Sure. My name is Aisha Boyce. I am an associate professor within the Division of Educational Leadership and Innovation at Arizona State University. Awesome. Thank you. So um, getting started, um, I'm curious, what, what are some of the tips that you give to your graduate students when they're starting to look for a career um, either as you know, current students or they're about to graduate, what are some of the things that you encourage them to consider? Sure, I think there are really three things that all students, um, no matter what level you are, that anyone should consider when they're trying to decide the direction of their career. The first is your location. Where do you want to live and where can you live? Um, some people can move anywhere at the drop of a dime, and others are a bit more landlocked because of family or because of interests. So your ability to move and like the location you live in will play a huge role. Um, the second is how much money do you initially wanna make? I think ultimately evaluators can do quite well for themselves. Um, however, um, starting off in different positions, there is definitely gonna be uh, a difference in the amount that you will get paid initially. And some of that has to do with your years of experience. Some of that will have to do with whether you have a master's or PhD, and a lot of it will have to do with what uh, sector you work in or what evaluation arena you work in, and we can talk a little bit more specifically about that. And the last thing is, what do you want your days to look like? Do you like working an eight to five and, and trying as poss- much as possible to not bring your work home? Um, or are you like me? You know, I work about uh, eight. 30 to about three, I I take a break to spend time with my husband and children. Then I work again in the evenings, but I have a lot of flexibility over my schedule. Um, But some people like being able to to know, you know, when their day ends, where for me, my day stops and ends throughout (laughs) throughout the day. So I think those are really the the most important three things to consider as you're 
attempting to kind of decide uh, what direction you're going to go in um, when it's time to pursue a, a career. Yeah, those are really helpful. Thank you. And so what are some of the sectors that folks getting a degree in evaluation could look into if they're, you know, to, what are the, the variety of options available? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. You know, when I started within the field of evaluation, um, I started in the government sector. I worked for the Arizona Department of Education. Um, like so many, I stumbled into the field of evaluation. And the reason why I mention this is that sometimes uh, evaluation positions are not labeled or listed as such. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just finished up my master's degree from Cal State Long Beach in research psychology, and there was a research associate position um, within the Arizona Department of Education. And after I applied for and obtained the position on my first day, they said, well, this is actually an evaluation position. You'll be evaluating statewide initiatives. You know, here's some <laughs> evaluation books. And um, I think that's important for people who are looking to get into the field to know that there are the um, jobs and careers in evaluation may not be labeled as such. And so I really think that there are kind of five key sectors um, in which evaluators can be found and can be uh, and can work in. Um, the first is, I just wanna make a note. The first is government. Um, you can work for federal or state level governments that can be departments of education, the National Science Foundation, the Center for Disease and Control, and the Government Accountability Office all have uh, resident evaluator and evaluation positions. Uh, the second sector is in academia or within K-12 school districts. Um, you know, I, what, one thing that I find interesting within academia is that while there are certainly um, kind of what I am, the position I am currently in is in this tenure track uh, role, which includes uh, research, teaching, and service, there are more and more um, positions within academic units for evaluators. Um, so those can be in offices of accountability and institutional research. And I have found that now more and more um, universities have these units specifically for evaluating programs that um, come to the institution, uh, but also they are serving as external evaluators for a number of federally state and philanthropic funded projects. And so I think they're looking for those if you want to work in academia, but don't necessarily want to be in the tenure track, those are great options. Um, Ultimately in philanthropic arenas, many um, philanthropic organizations have internal evaluators who work for them, um, like W.K. Kellogg um, has a number and has a large evaluation unit and there are many other um, philanthropic organizations. There's certainly kind of the, the private sector where there's think tanks and evaluation specific companies to work for. Um, there are a number of these, a lot of, oftentimes um, evaluators were, will start off kind of as independent evaluators, do quite well and then start their own companies, their own LLCs and such. Um, and then there's also um, another sector that I have recently learned more about because my own colleagues and students have started um, going to do evaluation. And this is really in the ed technology and um, industrial companies. So companies like Twilio, Udemy, even T-Mobile all have evaluation sort of positions. And finally, you can work for yourself as an evaluator. You can do quite well, make a bit of money, 
ultimately being an independent contractor and I do independent contracting on the side, but um, I have colleagues um, who this is their whole job where they, they have you know anywhere from two to 10 uh, evaluation projects that completely support their time. So it really depends on, again, where do you wanna live? How flexible are you about moving? How much do you wanna make specifically kind of starting off? Certainly if you go and work for somewhere like uh, the government, you might not make as much money initially, but you may have a lot of flexibility around holiday time. Um, whereas if you go work for an ed tech company or, or uh, a for-profit company, you are definitely going to start off making quite a bit more than some of these other sectors. And if you work for yourself, uh, you could make very little or you could make a lot, depending upon how many hours you intend to work and how many contracts you procure. Yeah, I think that last point uh, really ties back into those three things to consider is if you're interested in independent consulting, you probably want to be okay with flexible income um, because, Mm -hmm. you know, one month you might make $40,000 and one month you might make nothing. Um, And so being able to budget is really helpful in in going into independent consulting. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So what advice, like how does your advice maybe differ between master's and PhD students? Sure. I think the first thing um, to consider is that you don't need a PhD to be an evaluator, right? And um, you don't even ultimately need a master's degree in evaluation. I I do think that that is one of the truly beautiful and slightly horrifying things about our field is that anyone can be an evaluator or can can label themselves as such. I do think everyone should have some form of training, although certainly people who are mid-career in another field or who work in a specific context decide, wow, I know a lot about chemistry education. I am now going to be a chem ed evaluator. I've seen that happen in many other sorts of fields. And those people go back and they take um, evaluation courses from you know, the Evaluator Institute, Encompass LLC, AEA, um, CDC offers courses, right? So um, lots of different places um, offer kind of these short modules. So, but if you ultimately are aiming to obtain a master's or PhD, I think the thing that you need to think about is, is, you know, if you're a master's student, you can do quite well. Actually, my friend who works for Twilio, uh, she makes more money than me (laughs) and she has a master's degree um, and she does, she does quite well. She loves her job. And so I think if you decide to obtain a master's degree, I think the thing that you do have to know is that you can do quite well. Um, there's a shorter time frame in terms of, um, you know, time to degree, but you will have slightly fewer options in terms of, um, you know, evaluation contracts. Some contracts are going to be looking for people with PhDs, and some organizations are going to be looking for people with PhDs. Also, your starting salary, in general, until you obtain more years of experience, is going to be lower than someone with a PhD. Um, that being said, you know, I think PhDs are great for people who at some point may want to um, lead or be principal investigators of, of um, federally funded uh, or state funded projects. I also think people who want to take a, a deeper dive into the theory of evaluation and not kind of just learn more about the technical aspects of evaluation. Um, however, a PhD is not for everyone. And I think that it's important to note that you don't have to have a PhD to be in this field. And and so, but in terms of how my advice differs, I think ultimately it's pretty similar. Most of the the organizations that we mentioned, so the private sectors, the philanthropic organizations and the government 
organizations are looking for people who have a master's or a PhD. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to your experience um, in terms of what you have had experience doing and your methodological expertise. I will say though that no matter um, whether you're a master's or a PhD student, in addition to um, really beefing up your kind of evaluation methodologies, it's important that you have a number of um, methods, tools in your toolkit. So knowing various qualitative and quantitative and mixed methods ultimately is really important. And I will say what I have seen, especially um, in terms of my students' expertise and what the jobs that they've been able to attain, it's really important to have at least an intermediate level of quantitative skills because oftentimes companies, especially those outside of academia are looking for that. Would you say that the master's, like ending at the master's level, that it maybe also um, reduces the job responsibilities that you can potentially apply for? It seems like the the more upper level kind of, kind of uh, oh my gosh, my words are not coming well today. Like the more managerial project manager mm. type positions are usually geared towards more people with PhDs or masters with a lot of years of experience. Does, does that resonate for you? That, that is incredibly accurate. And I also think like supervisory sort of roles, people with PhDs are going to be expected to maybe have people who have our direct reports to them versus if you're at the master's level, that probably won't be one of your responsibilities as well. Mm-hmm. So I think you're spot on. So if somebody is looking for a job in evaluation, you, you mentioned earlier that a lot of these jobs don't have evaluator or evaluation in the title. So how do, how do people search for these jobs in evaluation? Sure. I I think it actually can be a little bit tricky. Um, I mean, ultimately, they can search on websites. um, They can search uh, kind of through networking. And they can ultimately, when especially when it's internal evaluation, they can search through like various company websites, especially if they know um, uh, where to search. So let's start with websites, like in terms of these big search sites. So eval.org is a great site to search. Um, the Chronicle often has, and honestly, some of these um, typical job sites like indeed.com can really have, um, can or jobbing.com can really be great place, a great place to start to, to look for positions. Um, also, fortunately or, or, or unfortunately, I cannot say enough about the importance of networking. I mean, I know that we're um, in this pandemic, moving into an endemic kind of world, and there haven't been as many in-person opportunities for networking, but my sense is that that is changing. And so, for example, AEA will be in person um, in New Orleans this, this year. And so m- networking is just incredibly important. I think um, some of my colleagues have, learned about positions by just by kind of talking or shooting the breeze with, with a number of people at conferences, um, which I think will be, as we continue to go back in person, more and more of those opportunities will be available. And kind of talking, I, so for example, I get emailed jobs all the time, right? And so, um, for example, someone from uh, Ed, um, Ed Research, an eval company, West Ed, emailed me and said, hey, do you have students uh, who are going to be graduating. I have people from school districts do this all the time. And so making sure that you stay in contact with your um, mentors and colleagues, especially those who are still in academia, can be really important because they can forward jobs as they as they hear about them and as they become available as well. Um, and when it comes to kind of internal evaluation, 
it's important to know like what, what types of organizations offer these positions. And then there are just like a number of companies that almost always have evaluation positions open, right? So like RTI, Apt Associates, RAND, WestEd, AIR, SRI, those sorts of companies, um, EDC, often have um, evaluation positions or evaluation type positions open. In terms of what you're searching for, you, you definitely want to put evaluation um, into the search criteria, but you're also going to put in positions like um, research associate, um, research scientist, data analyst, data scientist. And depending upon what you put in, you, you really have to take the time to read the job description because some are going to be more quantitatively leaning, qualitative, qualitatively leaning, or evaluation leaning, but you can't really know that just by looking at the job title alone. So taking the time to, to skim some of these websites, um, but also talking to people. I mean, when I was um, finishing up my PhD, one of the things that I did was I talked to people who had graduated from my program um, when I was making a decision about what sector I wanted to go in. And I just asked them, like, how did you find your job? What, what type of positions are there? And so, you know, there, I, I would say there's nothing wrong with kind of cold calling, if you will, people who work in these in these various organizations and just learning more about their trajectory, asking them to share their CVs to see, making sure that you have the skill set to obtain the job, but also figuring out like, how did you hear about this job? How did you find mm -hmm. out about these positions? I think um, is really important as well. Yeah, I think people like to talk about themselves, right? So asking people to give an <laughs> informational interview, like I've very rarely have people say no. And it's usually just because they're just overwhelmed with time, not because they they're not interested at all. So yeah, definitely recommend that people reach out to people. Like if you see somebody in your dream position, talk to them, find out if other dream positions like that exist. Um, I want to go into that networking piece. Cause I think that's really critical. And I, I find personally, that's how I've been able to navigate through my professional career. A lot is through the networking that I developed and the way I did a lot of that was through social media, through having mm. a web presence, um, through my personal website, as well as through LinkedIn and stuff. And so to what extent do you think that's important that people have an online presence um, mm. when they're applying for jobs? I think it's incredibly important. I, I want to say, I think if you have an online presence, well, first of all, I would say consider anything that you submit online to be part of your online presence and to be public. Even if it's somehow behind um, some wall of, you know, like for me, I have a professional kind of facing um, Twitter and LinkedIn persona or, you know, identity, right? right? But I also have, I'm an old person, right? So I also have like Facebook and um, Instagram, which is kind of for like friends and family and maybe a couple of people who are professional but have become close friends. But anything that I post on my Facebook or that I post my Instagram, I completely recognize that a potential job um, or a potential client may see. So it's not that I am like super careful about what I post, but I assume that anything I post online, even if I, it's something that, even if it's not part of like LinkedIn or um, kind of a professional facing site, I consider that someone may find this at some point. So I, I want to say that. Um, second of all, I think that these other like, kind of cultivating a presence, a social media presence is incredibly important. Um, as we continue in this increasingly digital age, especially um, as so many things are online right now, I think um, it's a really, really great place to network. The, the internet is a great place to network. And 
even if you may not um, find the position this way, certainly, certainly those who are looking to hire you can find you, right? So um, I've had people from various companies reach out to me and offer me positions because they looked at my LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. I've also had people from companies just reach out to me and say, hey, can you recommend people? I didn't even know that people found jobs like this, right? But they said, hey, can you recommend some people um, based on your profile? It seems like you may not be interested in leaving your position, but can you recommend others who might be great for this? And so Mm -hmm. I think um, one thing I haven't done myself a good job, which you know you're incredibly good at, Dana, is I don't have like my own personal website, but I do know that there are a lot of people who have this, and it's like on my kind of to do list in the, in the next, you know, I have like a three year to do list. So it's, it's something that I definitely want to <laughs> something that I definitely want to do, but I think it's important because um, companies want to have a sense of who they're hiring, want to have a sense of their their social media presence, and especially if you're an independent. Um, contractor, or if you're someone who is going to um, find work, I do find that those who are looking for evaluators will search for evaluators on LinkedIn and even on Twitter. And so having that, um, you know, a professional kind of facing social media presence, I think is important. I also think it's just important for your own personal growth. So finding a job, this may or may not happen on social media, but certainly, certainly finding um, colleagues, um, networking, someone may know of someone, may know of someone that where there's positions, um, ultimately it, it can't hurt. And so I think it's important to, to kind of cultivate that. Yeah. And going back to the earlier recommendation of building those connections with your mentors is it's really important if I'm going to you know, recommend somebody for a job, I need to know that you're interested in that type of job, that you're looking for a job. And so having those connections and being able to reach out to your network and say, Hey, if you, if this kind of opportunity comes up and as long as you have a good working relationship with them, like, can you recommend me for that? Um, like I'll get opportunities coming through my inbox as well. And so some of the students I'm like, Oh, I know they're looking for this. I'm going to forward it to them directly. And I might miss a student because they're not reaching out to me to, to let me know that this is something that they're working towards or that you're, they're interested in. Like I had a student just say like, oh, they found their dream job. It's like, so they sent it to me. I know what to look for. And so now when I see that, I can like forward them those opportunities when they exist so that uh, when they come up so that like I'm finding them their dream job. Otherwise it's really hard. And I'm just sending kind of the less tailored of the jobs I send, I think the less good of a fit it might be. And so when I know what people are looking for or that they, you know, these are their interests or whatever, it really helps in finding them that perfect, you know, maybe not perfect, but really good job for them. Yeah. I, I think that point cannot be overstated. Um, the importance of keeping in contact with mentors, um, especially because, especially people who, may be on your professional reference or who are on your CV. I found that um, people who are looking to hire others will, one, not only they'll contact your references, but they may contact other people who are on your CV. So try to keep the relationships there. But ultimately, someone may know someone. I've, I have had people say, hey, I know you were, you're not this person's advisor, but I, I saw that they were in your program. Like, what are your thoughts about them? And they may for better or for worse, ethically or non-ethically, like they will ask me or ask others like, oh, this, what do you think about this person? Mm-hmm. Um, ha, you know, ha, are you familiar with their work? Um, I'll tell a super quick story, you know, my own experience. I um, did my, I'm from Phoenix. I did my undergraduate degree at Arizona State University. 
And then my career led me to other, many other wonderful places. And right after I, and I always kept in contact with my undergraduate mentor um, who actually stayed at, at ASU. He then became the department chair of psychology at Arizona State University. And so, you know, every couple of years I would send him an email. Um, when I won an award for AA, I emailed him. When I earned tenure, I emailed, when I had, was notified that I had earned tenure, I emailed him. And right after I'd earned tenure, he emailed me and said, hey, like, let's have a chat. I have this thing I want you to do for me, serve on this board. And I was like, okay. So as we were chatting, he's like, well, what's next for you? What's, what's going to happen? And I said, well, you know, I'd love to eventually get back to Arizona. I'm from Arizona. I'm super happy in my current position. I love it. I love the people. But I miss being their family. At the time, I was pregnant with my second child. And he said, oh, well, send me your CV. Like, I actually know some people over in the College of Ed who I recently met. Like, you know, you never know what could happen. I sent him my CV. He forwarded it on. And I'll, it's not really important how all that happened. But literally, a month after he, I forwarded him my CV, I had a job offer from ASU. From wow. ASU. So I, I think it's, you know, and that happened, this type of thing happens all the time. It doesn't just happen in academia. One of my colleagues who works for Udemy, he just recruited one of his, his previous students to work there. And it's, um, it's just important to, to, to keep in contact with colleagues, keep in contact with people who you were in your program with, keep in contact with mentors, because they as they expand their, their network, they can recommend you. I have a good friend who um, left one position, a large company, and ended up going to a smaller company. And I was, um, I, I know the, the CEO of the small company. And I said, and she was looking for someone. I said, I have the perfect person for you. Like, I know you're interviewing people. You have to add this person to your profile. And of course, the person, you have to be qualified, right? There's, we could have a whole conversation about the qualifications you need and keeping your CV up to date and, you know, developing kind of professional, uh, interpersonal sorts of skills when it's time to interview. But having someone say, I know this person, I think the work is really high quality, it cannot be um, said enough. And, and ultimately, my friend obtained a position at this smaller evaluation company, which is more community engaged than the one she was working at. And she's super happy as, there as well. So you just never know who knows you or who knows other people who know you. So mm-hmm. networking, uh, mentorship, I think that goes on the entire length of your career. And also, especially when it comes to independent contracting, I often am sent or you know sent requests saying, "Hey, can you do this?" And I'm like, "No, I have no more time for anything." And now it's nice because I'm to the point where I can say, "Hey, um, this student, this person was a student of mine. They do really great work. I trained them myself, so I vouch for them." And I've sent you know dozens at this point um, of contracts or potential contracts with, with grants to students, and so that can happen as well. Mm-hmm. The point you're making about like the mentorship and and having those professional re- uh, references for you know the letters of reference when you apply for jobs, I think is really critical. Um, and making sure that through your education experience that you're working with people close enough who can attest to your evaluation skills when you apply for jobs. Because I've I teach all of our students, but I teach them, you know, some of them in our evaluation courses, some in our statistics, um, some I get more experience with than others. And there's a couple of students who will ask me to be letters of reference who didn't really apply themselves in my courses for whatever reason. And it's really hard for me to give them a good letter of reference. I'll do my best, but I also want to be honest, right? When I'm, when I'm working with potential clients, because they're going to come back to me and ask for future students again, and I don't want to lead them down a bad path. And so I think 
making sure that you find people and it doesn't have to be, you know, you, you can find multiple people in your program, but having at least one person who can like wholly attest to your abilities in doing the work of, um, both the, the technical aspects, the, the interpersonal aspects and all that, um, because people are going to be asking for that. Like I just did a, a reference for somebody and they're like, okay, between you and me, there are sometimes students or uh, like, you know, people that will hire who um, just need a lot of handholding. Is this person that, because we're really not looking for that. I'm like, thankfully I can say for this person, they're not like they're, they are gung ho. They are really like um, driven and really take charge in that work. Um, and so like, I could say like, that is the skill that they have because I've worked closely enough with them to be able to attest to that. Um, but other students, you know, they didn't ever build a relationship with me. So I'd, I'd say like, oh, I don't know, um, because they kind of did the work, but I didn't really get to know them close enough to be able to attest to that particular skill that they might have. Yeah, I, I think that is spot on. And I will say as someone who has um, been the chair of a search committee um, and who has served on many search committees and who's written many letters of recommendation, um, a lukewarm letter of rec is... <laughs> It's yeah. the same as a bad letter of rec, right? Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, I believe that I owe it to the profession to be honest and forthright about students' abilities. Um, I, I have, I, for example, I had, I did have one student where they were applying for a position and the person asked me, they said, you know, we are willing to do mentorship. We are willing to um, bring some along if we think that ultimately their potential is there. And I said, you know, I am so glad to hear that because I think this student is incredibly, is incredibly uh, talented, is incredibly driven. And just due to a number of circumstances, um, I think that there is a bit of growth that they still can do. And they ended up hiring a student and, and I was honest with that, right? And I said, but here are all their other skills. They're great in all these other ways. And most importantly, their work ethic and their interpersonal um, really, it's something that shines that you can't see um, on their CV. And so they hired mm -hmm. this person and, oh man, they were so happy. This person did so well. The, the, the person who uh, was the reference uh, checker person or the, who ends up being this person's supervisor emailed me like multiple times, like, we're so happy we hired this person. Thank you so much for, for letting us know, you know, what their strengths are, but what their areas of, of need were. And I mean, this person really blossomed and really thrived in this position during the time that they were at that uh, organization. And so to me, I think it's like you said, it's important to have people who know your strengths, who know your weaknesses. And there's also something to be said about your narrative, right? Like everyone has life things that come up, but how you show up every day for a class, for your project or assistantship work, for your job, people remember that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can not say enough about the importance of how you treat people and kind of these interpersonal skills. You can be, you know, have a million, I don't know, evaluation reports and publications and whatever. And if you're someone that people don't really like to work with, like you may get a job, but it might not be the job you want. Because for me, for example, I'm in a position now where I don't work with people who I don't feel like are going to treat me or my students well. I'm at a point in my career where I can easily say no to things. I have had people approach me for to be their evaluator and I felt like they were demeaning or they rubbed me the wrong way. And I'm like, no, then it's their loss as far as I'm concerned. And so mm -hmm. I think something, you know, not enough can be said about this idea of like, who am I? What is my narrative? How do people see me? 
we definitely know that there are a lot of um, dynamics that play at that, right? Whether you're a woman, a person of color, or other uh, identities can impact how people see you positively or negatively. But for me, I just try to show up every day. And so I, you know, this idea of I try to be myself, but I also try to be respectful. I try to be transparent. I try to be open. And that's with my clients and my students. And I just try to show up and be the best person who I can possibly be because I feel like I owe that to them. But also I know that people will contact, and don't get me wrong, like everyone who's ever interacted with me is not like, oh, you're just the best person. But I do know that people have said, I met someone who worked with you when you were a graduate student 10 years ago, and they just raved about your, you know, how nice you were. And yeah, your skills, but like, you know, working with people you like is something that uh, cannot be overstated, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think, when it comes to networking, when it comes to these interpersonal skills. Yeah, definitely. So what, what does the job market look like to you right now? How are things looking? I mean, we're, you know, two years into the pandemic, um, things are starting to open up. Um, maybe not so much right now we'll see what happens in the future coming up, but, um, what, what has it looked like for you helping your students right now get jobs? Yeah, I think, I think ultimately it depends on the sector. Um, I can say, um, that all of the students who have graduated, um, with, a master's from my program have found positions. Um, some of them have gone and worked um, in kind of like school or like K-12 uh, units. Um, some uh, have gone and worked for uh, kind of these uh, industry, industrial companies. Um, and they've, they've done quite well for themselves. For my PhD students, I will say that all of them um, some of them who have wanted to go into academia, they haven't been able to do that right away. Um, I think the the PhD, I think in general, higher ed is suffering just because there's a dip in enrollment across the country right now, because there was mm-hmm. a dip in 18 years ago, there was a, a dip in, you know, people having babies. And so that's impacting everyone, the ripples of, of that. Um, also just ripples of government supporting um colleges and universities, there's a dip, there's a dip happening across the country there right now. So my sense is that as people leave certain units in academic, um, in like departments, tenure track units, um, or sort of like clinical teaching lines, there's not as many, um, first of all, to start with, there's not a lot of those positions, period, but there's not as many of those positions open right now. That being said, I mean, I look at where we were five, six years ago, and there were maybe a handful of positions. I think that's still the case now. Um, so for those who get a PhD and who want to be in academia, my students, I think um, there haven't been enough opportunities for all of um, my students who want to go that route. That being said, they all have been able to find positions, whether they, I have students who've gone to work for the CDC, I have a couple of students who have worked for um, academic units within um, academic units uh, within universities, right, so like these offices of research or offices of evaluation within a university. Um, and so I, I think at least with evaluate, and, and there are tons and tons and tons of evaluation contracts, at least um, from what I'm seeing. So I haven't seen anyone not be able to find a job at all, but I, for a few of my students, it's not been exactly the job that they initially um, desired, but I am still hopeful that if you, for example, if you want to go into academia and you, um, You'll have to keep up your kind of attendance at conferences. You'll have to uh, still kind of publish. You might have to take a position um, at an institution where it maybe wasn't your 
first choice or within a department that wasn't your first choice as, a, as kind of a stepping stone, which ultimately sometimes can really work out for you, I, I would want to say. Um, I have seen a little bit of that, but I, I don't have any students who have not been able to find a position at all and not been able to find employment um, doing evaluation. So I think that is promising. And hopefully as time goes on, my students who are interested in getting more into like tenure track or academic positions. And I will say I have one student who um, she couldn't leave leave the location. So, and she had applied for positions and it just, you know, tenure track positions, it wasn't working out. I don't know if her resume wasn't there. I don't know if it was because she could, couldn't leave, right? I think actually it was because she couldn't leave. There were academic positions open, but she couldn't really apply for them. And, you know, after about four years, finally, she's been able to find something where she is in a tenure track position, but she kept up her networking. She kept up her skills. Um, she uh, worked on a number of projects. And, and so I think it is a realistic thing that if you're not, although if you start off an academic position, I should mention you will make less money than if you go work for like a think tank or some of these other companies. So um, yep. that can be a reason why people don't, <laughs> why people, if you jump one place, sometimes it's hard to come back. Not because of keeping your CV or being able to find something. It's a difference in, um, it's a difference in, in salary starting off. Are there particular skills that you think every evaluator should come out of their degree program with, like that they should have on their resume and be really have beefed up um, to be able to apply for these skills or these jobs? Sure. Yes, definitely. I think um, I think we can kind of organize these skills into various categories, right? I certainly think there's when it comes to like technical or um, methodological skills. Um, I would kind of put these in three categories. I will put them into evaluation skills, quantitative skills, qualitative skills. In the evaluation skills, everyone needs to know how to develop an evaluation plan, an evaluation kind of framework, evaluation questions, and logic modeling. I cannot say enough. If you, um, and I also think logic modeling is an incredibly useful skill for strategic planning, for um, all sorts of other um, program planning and program implementation, which sometimes evaluators end up in those roles. Um, so I think beefing up your being able to develop logic models and evaluation planning is incredibly important. Also um, reporting orally and written. So having the opportunity to practice your writing, the opportunity to develop your skills and being, being able to orally give your, um, give findings. And sometimes that also means giving difficult findings, practicing that. Um, I, just one quick note. I find that people who are in their master's and people in their PhD, they sometimes want to hurry up. They want to hurry up and get done. But if you hurry up and get done and you don't have, and I tell my students this all the time, um, if you hurry up and get done and you can't find a job, then, then not only have, you know, you have not done well, but then I have failed as a mentor. Yeah. And so for me, it's important that you develop your skill set, you develop your CV to match the job you want. So sometimes like rushing through school, while I know it's this huge sacrifice financially, personally, mentally, sometimes physically, you want to be able to go out and do the job that you're able to do and want to do when you're done. That's an aside. So the, you kind of need to have these like core evaluation skills. Um, you need to have kind of core qualitative uh, methodological skills. So knowing how to... Um, run a focus group, knowing when to use a focus group versus winning to, to conduct interviews, having a sense of how to talk, pe talk to people, how to member check, how to analyze qualitative data, how to write up qualitative data, um, how to um, write up qualitative data um, 
that honors what your interviewees were telling you. I think that's really important. And then quantitative skills. You know, I think we definitely live in a um, mixed method world, but if I'm being completely honest, a lot of positions that are outside of academia are quantitatively leading. They just Mm -hmm. are. So like one of my greatest regrets of my PhD is that I never learned R. I know R, the programming software. Uh, I know how to use SPSS. I can use SAS a bit. I certainly can use Excel to do a lot of things. And so I would say I have like intermediate um, statistical analysis skills. And I have a good uh, theoretical understanding of things like uh, IRT, structural equation modeling, factor analysis. Like I'm probably not the one who's going to do it, but if someone shows me what they've done, I can kind of check it enough. And I definitely know when I should be doing like a nested model or clustering versus this is like not t-test appropriate. (laughs) So I have that understanding, but I think really beefing up your, um, and a lot of people don't like to hear this, but really beefing up your quantitative skills, I just think is important. I I Mm -hmm. think a lot of uh, organizations are looking for people who know how to do that. Um, And not that that's the only thing you want to be doing. I think if you don't want to spend all your days staring at data and crunching numbers, then don't apply for like data scientist positions. But there are going to be times when organizations and companies are looking for that. So I think that's incredibly important. I would say that's the suite of kind of technical skills. I think there's also the suite of interpersonal skills Mm -hmm. that not enough people talk about. Um, And I'm just thinking of this on the fly, right? But I think when it comes to interpersonal skills, there is, um, I think communication skills are incredibly important. So, um, and of course, written skills, I think Grammarly is this great invention that everyone should use. I run everything through my Grammarly, Grammarly, from my, you know, social media posts through my email. So everyone should, should get that. Um, but also these kind of oral skills or oration skills, right? And I think this is something that you may have the opportunity to practice by going to conferences, by giving presentations in class, join Toastmasters, you know, like these sorts of things that I don't think enough people, especially for my students where English isn't their first language, which it's amazing that they can come and earn a PhD in a language that's not their first um, language. I think that is absolutely incredible. My husband speaks four languages. And so of course he has an accent. Of course, um, there are some words that he stumbles over, but I think um, employers and, and other people are less interested in forgiving things like that or less interested in acknowledging how difficult it is for someone to write a dissertation in a language that's not their first language. I I just find that absolutely incredible. I have so many students who've done this now. Um, But really practicing just talking, practicing um, conveying feedback. And then I just think there can't be enough. I think, so that's kind of like the interpersonal skills. And finally, I think one thing that people need to spend enough, a lot of time is uh, is reflecting on your own values Mm -hmm. um, and reflecting on your own um, axiological and epistemological, sorry for throwing, I can't talk without talking. Somehow I'm gonna sneak, sneak in the ologies in there. <laughs> but I think it's important that people know what's important to them and people know what they're gonna stand for and what they're not gonna stand for. I had a colleague who, out of getting her PhD, she was really into culture responsiveness, multiple colleagues actually who've had this experience. And they went and worked for, for companies And they found that the company's values didn't align with their own. And then they were unhappy and ended up leaving these positions after a few years, right? And I mean, kudos to them for kind of recognizing that there was something lacking there. But I also think 
it's important that you get a job, especially after you, you can't like be sitting um, without a position. But I think having a sense of what you're going to stand for and what you're not going to stand for, when you're going to speak up, when you see injustices, or if that's less of a priority to you, having a sense of that and being reflective about that um, is something that I think is incredibly important. And I think that can also drive the company that you ultimately work for or the sector that you ultimately work for. And it can also drive sometimes when to take a position, when to take a contract and when not to take a contract, or when you take a contract, when you can push if you see something that um, you don't agree with versus not. And I recognize that there's all sorts of other factors like power and finances that definitely go into this, but that's something for me that I'm continuing to be pushed on. I'm continuing to explore even 15 years into being an evaluator. And, you know, the evaluator I was when I first began is definitely not who I am now, but I do think that I've been fortunate to be surrounded by people who encourage me to reflect and who incur- and sometimes have, have really challenging conversations with me. And I encourage students, don't wait to do that for yourself. Um, really spend time deciding who am I? What type of evaluator am I? And I'm not saying everyone has to be like an advocate for social justice, but certainly you should recognize that evaluation doesn't happen in a vacuum. We don't live in a world where things like politics and race and language and religion, we can't act like they don't matter. And I, and the thing that I tell my students is, is you can't, you know, uh, control out for everything, for these, these other important factors, these other important variables, systems do exist. And I think we need to be aware of it and decide our place and our role um, within ultimately society. And so mm-hmm. just being aware of that and, and acknowledging, acknowledging and be honest about that and, and owning that. Yeah. I think, especially with that last point, what I'm hearing is a lot of this is you taking charge of your education and your career development. Um, and especially what you were saying earlier about students, just kind of running through the program that, Um, really taking the time and being intentional about building the skills, the qualities that you'll need to get the job that you want. Um, And that might require slowing down a bit and being thoughtful and critical and reflective in the work that you're doing and really focusing on learning the material for the purpose of your career. I think one of the struggles I have a lot is I think the students think that I'm just teaching things for the sake of teaching things. And it's always, everything is always towards an eye for a future career. Um, and I try to make that as clear as possible, but a lot of it's on the students, a lot of it's on them to like really build those connections and make it clear for themselves of how they're going to use this, why they, why this is important for them. And maybe there are some things that won't be important for them and that's fine, but like, I can only do so much to make this relevant for your future career. Like that internal connection building kind of has to happen to really take this and apply it in the future. Yeah, I, I completely agree about the skill set. And, and to add on to that, I think everyone should be really, really intentional about finding mentors. I cannot, not, not overstate this. I have a cadre of peer mentors, people who I did my PhD with, people who are in similar um, phases of their career as me. I reach out to them all the time with the small things like, do you think that this re- that this graph is showing what I think it's growing, showing to I'm considering leaving academia what should I do, right? Yep. Like, talk me off the ledge or help push me over, help maybe help there be a net at the bottom, right? <laughs> um, from peer mentors, I have mentors within the field of evaluation, people who were my mentors, you know, my PhD advisors who I still 
um, reach out to and talk to um, people who are on my committee who I still reach out and talk to for advice, to people whose work I really, really loved, who I have just emailed them and been like, you're so dope. Can we please just talk? Can I please just have coffee with you at a conference? And amazingly, these people are like, sure. Yeah, yeah let's talk. Um, some of these people are like Veronica Thomas, Hazel Simonette. So cool. I didn't know them. I didn't go to school with them, but I'm like, your work is amazing. Can I please just stand next to you? <laughs> and, and, and this mentorship and this friendship has uh, blossomed um, over, the, over the course of time. I have a new pen pal, uh, totally random, Robin uh, Miller. We, uh, she emailed me once and I just kept emailing her. I was like, can I just keep emailing you because I think you're so cool. And we just email each other. Like, and so I think those type of things um, have to, like those relationships have to be cultivated and you have to take it upon yourself. Hey, I saw this presentation. Can you talk to me more about it? Hey, I read this article. I just loved your thinking around this. Can I talk to you about it? Um, hey, I read one of your evaluation reports. I really love the way you do this. Now, certainly there are going to be people who are too busy to engage with you and that's okay. Um, but it's really important that I think you have mentors who are in the same realm in terms of like career as you who are within your field. And I also have mentors who are not within uh, evaluation, but who I think are just really smart people who I like to reach out to for advice every now and then. And so mm -hmm. there's kind of all these different, like there's always self work to do. And especially when you think about the career that you want to have, and that doesn't just include um, developing your technical skills. It means it's developing like these re professional relationships, I think are really important as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, that professional relationship, I think is key. I, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. I get a lot of emails from folks saying, can you be my mentor? And, and that's the ask. And that's kind of the extent of the email. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to support you. Um, I don't know why you want me to be your mentor. Or even if you do, it's like, it's, it's a weird ask versus I'd like to pick your brain for 20 minutes about this topic that I have, or just tell me a little bit about this work that you're doing. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to talk about that. Um, but that, that just like, can you be my mentor? I really struggle with that because mm -hmm. ideally I can, I would like to provide support to other people, but I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. It doesn't feel like a relationship building email to me, as opposed to here's this thing. I'd love to talk more about it. Can I take, you know, take you for coffee at the next conference or something like that, or mm -hmm. just even just send you an email back and forth of ideas or something. That is an excellent point. I think if you can help it, don't just send an email saying, can you be my mentor? Um, I think you're right. As someone who is a mentor and who gets asked to be a mentor, I don't really, I agree. I don't really know what to do with that. So having a specific ask and not just like being like, you're so amazing. I, I was joking when I said that, right? But like, <laughs> uh, you know, asking like, hey, I have this thought around this topic. I know I saw you wrote about this. Like, can we spend 30 minutes talking about this? Don't ask. I also want to say in this age of Zoom, Stop asking people for an hour of their time. Uh, <laughs> yes, send an email. Yeah, like send an email asking for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Those are like my go-to. So I have 15 minutes. Um, that is just something that I think people should <laughs> just start thinking about. Like no more hour-long, hour-long mm -hmm. meetings, meeting requests. But yes, I, I completely agree. Being and I think we have to be intentional. Don't just ask everybody. If there's something, um, a connection that you feel like you might have with someone. Um, honor that they might be busy. And so figure out, you know, not just how it can benefit you, but how it might be uh, intellectually engaging for them. Like I, the people who I mentor and who I keep in contact with, like, I love seeing them them grow, but I have also learned from them. I have also um, developed um, ideas and networking through, the, through them as well. And it's in 
while mentorship is not necessarily meant to be mutually beneficial, I feel like I have grown so much as a person um, through my mentorship, through my advising, and that all of that brings me so much joy, but also it's, it's, it it takes a lot of time. Yeah. That's, I think that is the thing I miss when people are saying, can you be my mentor? And I don't get like, what is the personal benefit that I might see? Even if it's just the joy of like providing some support to a young and emerging evaluator, for example, um, I don't see it with that, that blanket request that doesn't feel personal or personalized Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So yeah, I appreciate, I I've, I've always been curious and I haven't talked to anybody about that. So I appreciate your thoughts on that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so just kind of wrapping this up, what final tips do you have for students looking for a career in evaluation? Um, I mean, consider the the three things I mentioned, right? So being really thoughtful about where you want to live or where you can live, the amount of money you um, want to make initially and what you want your days to look like, how flexible you want to be, if you want to travel, if you like kind of working in the computer, if you're open to relocating versus um, wanting to work at home. There's a lot of opportunities for that right now, staying in your same location, um, making sure that you're developing your, your kind of technical um, and interpersonal skills as well. And ultimately, um, networking and just being thoughtful about where you see yourself in five years. I mean, and really, really, really taking the time to vision. I mean, I am someone where I you know, when I said in three years, I want to have a, a website. I, I am serious. I have like a little one-year goal, a little three-year goals, five-year goals, 10-year goals. And some of those I've met, some of those I meet faster, some of those make, take a little time. But I think ultimately life and your career is about being intentional. I, I think that things um, very rarely happen serendipitously. And if they do, it's because, yes, there has been an opportunity that has opened itself up, but um, you were prepared to walk through that door. You had been preparing yourself, preparing your skills, um, networking, so that when this opportunity just happened to, to come up, that you were prepared for it. And so I think not enough can be um, said about that. Yeah, I love that idea that we have to cultivate ourselves to be ready for those opportunities when they present themselves. Love that. Yeah. So wrapping things up, thank you so much. This is really helpful. Um, I hope my students enjoy it and other future professionals in our field. But to wrap up, um, I like to do something that I, I've lovingly taken from Code Switch, NPR's Code Switch podcast. They ask what song is giving you life right now, but I'm curious what in evaluation is giving you life right now? Yeah, I, you know, I think so many things are, are giving me life right now, especially within the arena of my scholarship. Um, I'm working on an NDE volume with Leah Neubauer, Tom Archibald, and John Lavelle, and that's been given the green light, and so we're moving forward with that. Um, I have a book with colleagues at Western Michigan, um, Lori uh, Lori Wingate, Lisa uh, Fetchow, and Kelly Robertson. We have... um, we have uh, a call for proposals out and I, a huge shout out to Nikki Bowman, um, Aisha Rios and Vidya Shanker who have like really pushed and challenged our thinking, lots of hard conversations, which I appreciate from the three of them about what does it mean to um, exist within the system and to replicate injustices, especially as we talk about injustices and try to further our work. And they have really pushed our thinking around the book and making sure that we um, provide enough support financially and otherwise for, for authors, um, especially author, BIPOC authors and other authors with different identities. And then finally I have, I just found out that I have um, work that I've been like kind of what I would call like my 
um, work that really speaks to who I am and who I want to be as evaluator, two articles that were just um, accepted into the American Journal of Evaluation. One's about how evaluators define and measure diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm super mm -hmm. excited for that to eventually come out. And I just have a, another article where we explore Black evaluators' um, roles, um, identity, and practice. And that was just accepted. So I am kind of overjoyed at all the things that are happening um, in my career from a scholarship standpoint at this point, which is um, because it's things that I'm really interested in, things that I really believe in. Um, not that my previous work isn't that, but I'm just super excited about the direction that things are going in right now. Oh, I'm so glad about all of that. I'm, I'm looking forward to every single one of these things coming out. Um, love all the work that you've been working on lately. So anything that's coming up for you, anything that you'd like to share with our listeners as we wrap up? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm super excited and super proud. Speaking of mentorship, I have um, one student who's, get, who's getting ready to graduate with her PhD. And so I'm heading to Greensboro in about a week and a half to hood her. Mm. I'm super excited about that. So proud of her. She's come such a long way. Um, her work is literally going to change. I, I, I could cry. I'm so excited. Her work is literally going to change the field. I mean, she's been really looking at the voices and experiences of Latino, Latina, Latine, Latinx evaluators. And her dissertation is just going to like, I literally think change the landscape of the field. She's so smart. She's um, Gretel Arias Orozco from Costa Rica. She has some really great stuff coming out. I'm excited. And then I also have four other students who should be finishing up the summer. I mean, that is like, I'm super proud of all the work I do. I, I, I love being a scholar, a teacher, practitioner, but I'm so proud of when I like see my students succeed, like something in my heart just like squeezes and jumps for joy. And so I'm just excited that I have so many students who, especially like trying to, I, I kudos to everyone who's in school right now. Like I can't imagine being in the middle of a pandemic trying to get my master's or PhD. Let me yeah. just say that. So all of you who have tuned in who are, uh, attempting for a master's and PhD right now, like you all are the real superstars. You all are the real heroes because it's just a challenging time right now, especially those who are trying to like really in the in the in the depths of it the past few years. And so that's giving me so much joy, and I'm so excited to. I, I for those who know me, I was at UNC Greensboro. I'm now at Arizona State, and so I haven't seen everyone in about a year because there haven't been any conferences or anything like that. So I'm looking forward to going and seeing them all in person, especially Hood my student and eventually in December hooding uh, four more students. So. Oh, that is so exciting. That's the joy of the work is when they, you know, get to spread their wings and fly off and leave. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Aisha. I really appreciated this. This has been incredibly helpful. And I think something that a lot of young and emerging evaluators has been looking for of how to, how to get into this field. So I really appreciate all the wisdom you had to share with us today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and speaking of social media, I think it would be great if others engage us. I'm at Aisha Voice on Twitter. Would love to hear others' thoughts and, and maybe get this conversation going after this drops. Yes, please. Thank you. Awesome. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast website at evaluland.fireside.fm and subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluate Land.